Scott. Okay, uh, yeah. Only, well, maybe not the one of Michael Trent, but the real Michael <laughs> 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 uh, I always feel great. I have to say, the same thing has been happening to me because my cousin is another Michael Franco, uh, married to my cousin um, Hannah, um, uh, Frida Ray Mahana, and uh, he's now apparently a, a real rabbi. So. Oh, wow. Uh, there is somebody that's also uh, doing this stuff, and it's not me. So, but I get a lot of credit for that. So I'm just passing the buck on a little, a little further. But really, thank you so much for having me, for inviting me. This is a really a beautiful crowd you have here. I'm excited to to learn the Book of Kohelet with you guys. It's a book that you know holds a very close place in my heart because uh, it really expresses a lot of different thoughts and different ways of looking at the world. And um, I want to see if we maybe we can make sense of, uh, you know, some of the thoughts of what, what's going on in this book. Um, so just to begin, I want to start off with some thought experiments for you guys. You know, if, if this is a book that's all about questions, it's all about asking different things about the world and about uh, reality and the universe and existence. So if you had audience with God, and you could sit there in front of God and ask God any question, one question you had, had for God, you might say something like, you know, Hashem, beyond positive and negative, beyond yin and yang, whatever is going on in this world, what is reality? You might ask something along those lines. And God might say something like, my child, your question has absolutely no meaning. And then you say, all right, Hashem, I don't even know what to ask you. What question should I ask? And Hashem would say, okay, there's your question. You would say, why does there even need to be a question? Um, so I think a, a problem that we have is that we're, we're, we're trying to ask questions uh, without really knowing who we are and without really understanding who's asking. That's really the first question if you ask me. Before you ask any question, you have to ask the question of who am I? So I think all questions really are derivations of that. Um, and in some of the frustrations in the book of Kohelet, we see a person who is lost a little bit in this journey of life. And I think the beauty of this book being included in the canon of the Tanakh is the fact that, yes, you know, uh, these questions are maybe bordering on heresy sometimes. And yet they were included by the rabbis and they were and it wasn't rejected from the Tanakh because it's trying to tell you that we all go through these different types of thoughts and you should allow the space in your mind to think about anything under the sun. And when you do that, you create a, a different way of being and a different way of relating. And you become a lot more relatable to other people because you show them, no, I didn't just accept everything like this. I was able to really think deeply about these questions. And I think beyond getting answers in Judaism, the most important thing really is asking the right questions. So... Uh, you know, like we're saying, this book is, is full of a whole bunch of different philosophies within it. And it's amazing the, the different places that it'll take you. Um, but what really strikes me is what we mentioned a second ago, the frustration of the writer. So when we'll, we'll talk about, is it Shalom? Is it somebody else? There's a big you know, debate among the, the tradition and the scholarship as to who really wrote this book. Um, but I want to present, before we go into the book itself, some ways of looking at the mystery of reality 
that express this question in a different way. And, uh, you know, one of them is from a famous atheist, believe it or not. And to me, this quote of his at the end of his book, A Brief History of Time, is actually a very religious quote. So here, here I'm at. This is Stephen Hawking. He's, he's a famous physicist. He says, even if there is only one possible unified theory, he spent his whole life trying to figure out one equation to unite all of physics. It is just a set of rules and equations. What is it that breathes fire into the equations and makes a universe for them to describe? He's saying, what exactly is it that is making it that there's something rather than nothing? The usual approach of science of constructing a mathematical model cannot answer the questions of why there should be a universe for the model to describe. Why does the universe go to all the bother of existing? So we were asking before, the biggest question is, who am I? I think the second biggest question is, why is there something rather than nothing? And if you, if you start to ponder these questions, they're not necessarily going to give you answers that you could put into words, but they might be like a finger pointing at the moon. They might be something that is pointing you in a certain direction, where if you follow that direction, you'll have an experience of truth beyond what you could ever possibly have imagined. Um, and then here's a quick quote from Albert Einstein. Albert Einstein says famously about the mysterious, he says, the most beautiful experience we can have is the mysterious. It is the fundamental emotion that stands at the cradle of true art and true science. Whoever does not know it and can no longer wonder, no longer marvel, is as good as dead. And his eyes are, dim are dimmed. It was the experience of mystery, even if mixed with fear, that engendered religion. A knowledge of the existence of something we cannot penetrate. Our perceptions of the profoundest reason and the most radiant beauty, which only in their most primitive forms are accessible to our minds. It is this knowledge and this emotion that constitute true religiosity. In this sense, and only this sense, I am a deeply religious man. I am satisfied with the mystery of life's eternity and with the knowledge, a sense of the marvelous structure of existence, as well as the humble attempt to understand even a tiny portion of the reason that manifests itself in nature. So here's the smartest man that ever lived, you know, other than Shil Mohamed, probably, and Albert Einstein. And he's saying that the thing that inspires him the most in all of reality is the mystery of existence itself. And this is something that is central to the book of Kohelet. And to me, that's incredible. We have a book in the Tanakh that's asking the biggest philosophical question you can ever ask. And it's supposed to lead you in that direction of really an, a relationship and a knowledge of HaKadosh Baruch. So just to, to give a few more preliminary remarks about Kohelet before we actually delve into the first Perek. It's a very you know, strange book. There's a lot of absurdities that he's bringing up. There's, there's a lot of injustice in the world that he's grappling with. But beyond all of this, the writer of the book never doubts the existence of God. That's one thing he says that's off the table. The world makes absolutely no sense if we throw that away. Whatever that means, whatever God is, this sovereign ruler of the world or existence itself, there must be something that is providing for existence. That seems to be Kohelet's uh, deep assumption. Uh, but, you know, he, he struggles so much with the question of meaning. 
I highly recommend if, if, if you haven't read it, the book Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. And, you know, people in the Holocaust, people going through suffering, of course, will go through struggles about what is the meaning of my life. But here's a man who presents himself as having it all. The opposite of something like the Holocaust. This is a person who had all the wealth in the world, and yet he was led to question the same question as somebody who's suffering tremendously of really what the heck is the meaning of everything and why is there something rather than nothing? So a couple of words about the authorship. Our tradition says that it's Shilamo, of course, and, and I think there's, there's a few different opinions about this in the tradition. Um, and, you know, the, the word Kohelet, does anybody know what the Shoresh, the root of the word Kohelet is? Kahal. Exactly. Kahal means congregation. Exactly. So it seems like the simple meaning of that word Kohelet is the person who is the member of the assembly or really somebody who preaches to the assembly. So on the one hand, he's presenting himself as a common man's teacher. But at the same time, he's Kohelet ben David. He's this person of the assembly and preaching to everybody, but he's also a son of David. And I think what, what the writer wants you to think of him as is actually a persona, a fictional figure that he's presenting as a thought experiment in this book. He's saying, this is, I'm not presenting to you a historical account of myself as actually a Ben David, but rather in order to express these philosophical thoughts in the best way that I know how, I wanna present this king as Solomonic in his stature, Solomonic in quality and quantity of his words. And when you think of it in that way, it allows you to understand how the, the book is functioning and how these, these ideas are coming forth. Um, a couple more things. You might notice throughout the book some commonalities to other philosophies in, in uh, the ancient world, like Stoicism or even uh, Epicureanism is you know about seeking pleasure versus about restricting pleasures you'll see a lot of different ideas like that so we could bring that up throughout of course i want this to be an interactive class if anybody has any questions or comments of course feel free to chime in uh, and ultimately this is a book about finding truth it's a book that says i want to be able to find whatever wisdom i can in my limited scope as a human being. And also beyond just that, I wanna lessen my suffering and find happiness where I could find happiness. And he gives you very practical measures and very practical ways to find that happiness. Um, and you know, we're gonna talk about the word, a couple of key words that'll come up. One of them is simha. Now, if you, if you hear the word simha, usually in the Torah, what does simha mean? Joy, very good. And if anybody ever read that Rabbi Sachs article that he, he used to write periodically, Alaba Shalom, he's talking about this is really the joy that we share. It's a deep-seated spiritual joy that comes forth. But funny enough, in this book, the word simha actually has a very different connotation. It really means something more like happiness in the personal level and personal pleasure. So we'll see how this plays into the book. And even the word tov and tova also comes to have that type of connotation like simha does of goodness. What kind of goodness? 
simple pleasures of life. And that seems to be part of the answer uh, for the writer of this book, for Kohelet, we'll call him from now on. Uh, and finally, uh, like we said, the problem that he's addressing is how can there be meaningfulness in life when everything seems so meaningless and it doesn't seem like we're really making any progress in the world. Uh, he's frustrated very often and it's, I think, very relatable. This is the point. The point is not to say, oh, this guy was off the derech. This guy, you know, he was a heretic. I don't think the hachamim wanted that when they put it in the canon. They wanted to say, look, everybody has these kinds of thoughts. And we want to include that within the corpus of Judaism to show you that you're not alone and that you shouldn't, you know, shun yourself or repress those thoughts within your ego structure. And you become a much healthier person when you acknowledge these questions and you allow yourself to grapple. Yeah. It's amazing. Why? Why they rejected? I think I think that's a good question. I think we'll see throughout the class, you know, how easily these things could be seen as as heretical, and how easily these these ideas could be taken in the wrong way. Yes, I think I think that's why. Oh, there's there's many many statements in this book that could be construed that way. Kohelet in Kohelet. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Well. Yeah. We could. We could. Uh, I mean, you could. Yeah. We could, we'll. We'll figure it out. But we could. We could intersperse them in a in a balance. But we'll see how it goes. Um, finally, I wanna. I want. Right before now, we're gonna go into the text. I just want to give an interesting story that I heard, like a mashal or a parable, that there was once a man who was uh, walking in a forest. He slips and falls, and all, down he goes off a cliff. And finally, his leg gets caught in the vines and he's dangling there in the vines. And he sees right below him is a tiger circling around, ready to consume him. And then he looks above his head and he sees two mice, a white mouse and a black mouse. And they're slowly gnawing away at the vine above his head. And it's like, you know, talk about being caught between a rock and a hard place. This is caught between a vine and a tiger, you know, and, and what do you do? So what does he see? He sees right in front of his eyes is a beautiful strawberry. And he plucks the strawberry and he eats it. He says, this is the most beautiful thing I've ever tasted in my life. And I think very much this story encapsulates what the book of Kohelet is very much about. So without further ado, we could go into the text itself. Um, and yeah, if anybody has any, any questions or comments, you know, if, it, if it's a short one, I'm sure we could, we could work it into the class. Um, so let's see. Divre Kohelet ben David, Melech Birushalayim. These are the words of Kohelet, son of David, the king of Yerushalayim. Havel Havalim, Amar Kohelet, Havel Havalim, Hakol Havel. Utter futility, said Kohelet, utter futility, all is futile. What is he talking about? What does this sound like? And by the way, there's some Tanakhim here if anybody wants to follow along. Otherwise, you could look at your phone. I recommend like following in the text because it, it could help you. As my rabbi used to say in elementary school, the, the letters make you even wiser. Um, ah, so so that's, that's a very good question. 
the, the, a lot of traditional people will tell you that it was Shilom Mohamed, but there's a lot of evidence to, that would probably go against that. And that would say, really, it seems like it's from a later date and a later era because it's it, the language that's used is really post-exilic. It's after the exile. And a lot of the ideas seem clearly later. Uh, and beyond that, the, the word Kohelet ben David Melchizedek it might imply something like this is a guy who had tremendous wisdom comparable to Shilom Mohammed, and it's really more of a thought experiment regarding how to think about these thoughts. We don't, know. We don't really know who wrote it. Exactly. Does it matter? Personally, I don't think so. I think that the, the author himself is trying to paint you a picture in this way to say it doesn't matter who I am. But it matters who I'm presenting the author as. And being Solomonic in wisdom and in riches and wealth kind of paves the way for the rest of the book. I think that's the answer. At the end of the book, chapter 12, yeah. Ah, yes, exactly. It's not a name. Exactly. It's more of a, a title for somebody. It's like. You the same verse, the first verse. Exactly. It's, it's like a chiastic. Thing going on there. it's almost enveloping the whole text but that's beautiful it's, it's a great i just read that actually today it's a really beautiful point so we'll see throughout the book how this idea develops and he's almost these first two pisukim and also in chapter 12 like you're saying he steps out of his uh his role and he starts talking as the narrator uh, of the text so we'll see what's going on here so first of all, what do you what do you make of this word hevel havalim akol havel? Do you know anybody in the Torah named Hevel? Yeah, Hevel. Exactly. And why do you think his name was Hevel? Didn't say Hevel. Havel havalim. So yeah, exactly. Havel havalim. But what does the word Hevel or Havel mean in the Torah? It's the name of somebody, but it's fleeting. It actually means vapor. Exactly. So here it's translated as vapor of vapors or utter futility, something that's totally absurd, totally senseless. And you, you hear the alliteration, you hear it's repeated over and over again, this word, and it's trying to show you how, uni thank you so much, how universal this truth is. If it keeps, keeps repeating, it's kind of, you know, you know, shoving this into your face and saying, this is the truth of reality. This is the universal truth of reality that everything is totally senseless sometimes. Sure. So the English common, I guess King James, vanity of vanities is really somewhat incorrect translation of I, I, I don't know about incorrect, but I would say that, yeah, it's a, it doesn't catch exactly the, the concrete to the abstract, which is usually how we like to go in Hebrew. The word hevel literally means vapors. And by the way, why does the person in Torah have this name of Hevel? Well, it's not like a Hevel spirit within the Torah. It's another Fine, granted, but still. I think the fact that in the story of Cain and Hevel, his name is Hevel or Havel, because he's fleeting, because he is killed so quickly, we barely hear about the guy, and his life is much more fleeting than everybody else's at the time. Yeah, but that's a 
Heavens, God never speaks to Exactly. Hevel's gone. That's my point. Perfect. So, so in this text now, this idea of everything being totally senseless and, and absurd is captured by that word Hevel Havalim. And you could think about this, by the way, especially for somebody living in an ancient time. You see them and they're, you know, they build a life and they build a home and a family and children. And then all of a sudden, a group of barbarians comes and knocks them down and totally uproots their way of life. And you could see the absurdity of how that feels for somebody. And, you know, uh, thank God we live in a much more stable time and a much more peaceful time. But God forbid somebody should get some kind of diagnosis or some kind of tragedy. They still happen. You know, and that's when we need to rely on this line of thinking. That's when we need to look into this type of a book and say, what is it trying to teach me? What is it trying to tell me about this way of, of asking the question? So let's see the next pasuk. What real value is there for a man in all the gains that he makes beneath the sun? Right? What profit is there? What's the point? of doing all this. You know, when somebody goes through a tragedy, it's very common to question all of it, to say, why is there something rather than nothing? Why should I continue going on living? It's so painful that it doesn't quite seem worth it. Uh, you know, and, and there's a certain unchangeability of the natural phenomenon. We, we know what, it, what it's like to feel good, but we, all, we also know what it's like to feel in pain. And we say to ourselves, is, is this really worth it? Is, is this whole game that we're playing worth it if it includes such horrible pain sometimes? Uh, and the truth is, I think for myself, a big cure to this way of thinking. So, you know, they, they say about HaKadosh Baruch Hu Makdim Hashem precedes the uh, affliction with a refuah, with the cure. So for me, the cure very often is mindfulness and meditation because it allows you to drop out of this rat race and this hamster wheel of everything is about the next thing and worrying about the next thing. And instead of that, just to be present with what is right now, because that's what's real. And the world becomes a lot scarier and a lot more tragic when you, when you think of it as inevitably leading towards something. That's true. But if you think about it, you're never going to die. You're not, never going to have a time when you are dying. Because the second you're dead, there is no you to experience that. So you're alive for all the moments that you're alive. And then you're dead for all the moments that you're dead. And that's just it. So there's really nothing to be afraid of. It's just always right here, right now. That's a, a very deep thing to, to try to understand. Yes? Mm -hmm. I think of the town of Baba. That they built and built and built, and it was so ethereal that it fell apart like a mm. like a like a spirit, like a like this. You know, you have so many instances in the Torah when you build and build. And build yes, and they are ethereal. Absolutely, and you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna quote a poem later, but I might as well quote it now. If anybody knows the the, the poem Azimandius, yes. it's a really beautiful poem, and uh, the the. The part of the, the poem that I want to quote, say it again? Yes, uh, uh, Percy Shelley, exactly. So uh, the, the, it goes like this. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. So a person stumbles upon 
in the Egyptian desert, uh, uh, a very old, uh, sunken in the sand statue. And he kind of wipes off the sand and he sees written the words, my name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty and despair. And then it says, nothing beside remains. So it's just that. And the absurdity and the irony of that is, look, we're trying to build and we're trying to construct all these different things. And yet, all that really is, is right here, right now. And everything that's here right now is going to be destroyed. So stop thinking about the future constantly and be more present with what is right now. That, for me, is really very much the cure to going too far down this rabbit hole of thinking. Um, but like we said, this, what's the point of all this stuff that you're doing under the sun? We said that he kept repeating the word, right? What's the point of that? Is to show you the universality of it. And here's again that idea, everything that you could possibly conceive of under the sun, the universality of all of this truth, that's what I'm trying to say. In the entire world, in the entire universe, everything that exists, exists in a state of incessant cyclicity. It's constantly on a hamster wheel, repeating itself and repeating itself. And humans really have such a, a small ability to influence this in any way. So Rabbi Lavatan, Alava Shalom, I listened to one of his classes, and I remember he said that one, probably the biggest contribution of Judaism is a transformation of the way that we see history, where in the ancient Near East and all the ancient cultures, they saw time as totally cyclical and repeating itself and repeating itself. And, you know, no point and no direction. But in Judaism, we were the first ones to invent the idea of history and to invent the idea that time is not cyclical, but it's linear and it's headed toward a certain goal and toward a certain path. And when, you, when you're able to balance those two views of, of time, your life, I think, becomes a lot more balanced because you're able to balance the moments of mindfulness and presence with the moments of, let me go do things for the sake of progress and changing the world for the better. Um, <clears throat> and then interestingly now, we're gonna go through a few pesukim where he elaborates on what he means by everything we said so far. So listen up, pasuk dalit. One generation goes, another comes, but the earth remains the same forever. The sun rises and the sun sets, right? The next pasuk, sun rises, the sun sets, and glides back to where it rises. Southward blowing, turning northward, ever turning blows the wind. On its rounds, the wind returns. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place from which they flow, the streams flow back again. So we just mentioned four different things. We mentioned... The earth remains the same forever. The sun rises, the sun sets. The wind, and then the water. So basically, you have the four elements. 
earth, fire, uh, air, and water, no matter what you're looking at within this physical world and the fundamental composition of it, it's all the same. And it's all just a soup of molecules, Yanni, that's the way we could say it today, that's just dancing with itself. And it's just playing around with itself. And it's not really headed in any particular direction. So what's the great irony of this? The great irony of this is that on the one hand, this could seem like the most tragic thing in the world. Like, okay, there's no point in any of it. It just goes on and on and on the show goes and that's it. It just keeps flowing. It just keeps going. So on the one hand, that's tragic because we want there to be a point and we want there to be a destination. But at the same time, there's nothing more comforting than this because you think to yourself, well, this whole time I thought I had to get somewhere, but really I've already been there the whole time. And I could just relax into the music of what it is right now. And it's a musical thing in that way, yes. So you had a romantic poet, Percy by Shelley, who wrote Ozymandias, but that's translated later into Ernest Hemingway's The Sun Also Rises, wow. Simon and Garfunkel, A Time for Every Season. Wow, I didn't know that. That's amazing. So it really all connects, you know, and, and, and that's, that's exactly the point is that I think everybody kind of struggles with this. and Everybody picks up on this. And when you're done with your day and when humans finish their day of work, what do, what do most people like to do? They like to go to a concert. They like to dance. They like to sing. We like to do things that are valuable for their own sake. We like to do things that are fun just because they're fun. And just inherently meaningful and pleasurable. And you, you realize there's a balance here. Yes, on the one hand, we are getting somewhere. But at the same time, there's a point at which we realize there's nowhere to go. And there's nothing more to become. And what you're looking for is already here. And the more you, you remind yourself of this, the more you're able to be at peace right now. So let's just see a couple of comments about these past four Pesukim. Um, this, the, the idea of all the generations are coming and going and the earth is just there. It's human evanescence. The physical world is permanent, but humans are continually coming and going. And uh, no matter what the, the generations are going through, even though those change, mankind itself is always the same. There's always going to be this kind of person and that kind of person and this kind of drama and that kind of drama and these kind of politics and those kind of politics. And it never ends. And it's just different variations of the same theme. So it could get frustrating when you see the world this way, because it's like, all right, what the heck is the point of all this? And it's this is thinking very much in a, you know, show me the money, show me the next thing. But I'm trying to show you already what's the flaw maybe in Kohelet's thinking that he's always future oriented, he's always goal oriented. And a person who really is able to accomplish things in the world, a person who's really able to get things done ironically, is almost always the person who's totally at peace with what is right now. And from that place of peace in the now, you act with the ultimate wisdom going forward. So I think if you get lost in the progress of things, you're gonna end up causing a lot more harm than good. And that, unfortunately, that's what we see very often in the world. How many wars were fought with good intentions? And, you know, of course, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Um, so we mentioned the, the, the sun rises and the sun sets. And this word that he uses, 
for the sun returning back to its place in the sky. It goes every day. I see east to west, east to west. How'd you already? What, you got to keep going just to come back to the east? You got to go west and back to the east? What's the point? <laughs> I guess so. And, and the word that he uses is sho'if. That it's, you know, it's just, it's panting. It's like trudging back to the east. It's almost like the sun itself is like, I'm done with this. I don't even need to, to keep on going and to keep on cycling like this. I think the key word is, yeah. we did not use it until now, was pessimism. Mm. Very pessimistic. Very. You see it all over. Very pessimistic. Yeah. But what you describe here, it's, it means it's worth nothing. Exactly. And how do you measure worth? And for him, measuring of worth is about what are you producing for the next thing? You know, what are you really by giving way, me? By the way, after the, chapter, the second chapter, he said, I bought houses, I, I have gardens, mm -hmm. I have beats, I have that, I have slaves, and I have a lot of money. So what? Mm. After all, Kaput. Kaput. Exactly. 100%. <laughs> exactly. And it's, 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 uh, I think the beauty of it is noticing that we all feel this way sometimes. You know, even if you're the happiest guy in the world, you're going to encounter suffering and difficulty in your life and you're going to think this way. And when you do, it's important to have an outlet and say, I'm not alone. There's other people who feel this way at times, even within the, the Tanakh itself. Question. Sure. Was, um... I think for sure it is, but I think more than just his own mortality is the, the fact that mankind as a whole or humankind is always static. And where even with our death, there's no real meaning. If, for example, we were able that every death meant something and got the world further towards some kind of goal, that would be great. But it doesn't really seem to be going towards any goal. It just seems to be repeating. So therefore, life and death become meaningless. And it's like, so what the heck is the point of all this? But I just want to contrast this, by the way. So he's saying the, the sun is panting its way back to the east. You look in Mizmor Yotet uh, of Tehilim. We read it on Shabbat. It's describing the sun returning to its spot in the sky like a, a groom leaving his chuppah, the bridal canopy, he's running to go and to uh, greet a guest. And it's so beautiful in that way of describing it. So this shows you, it's really all about perspective. And where does perspective come from? That's a very vexing thing. It's a very perplexing thing. Do I choose when I'm going to be happy, when I'm going to be pessimistic? The truth is, it's very hard to put into words. If, you, if you're at that level, please, let's talk after. I want to hear. But at the same time, I think there's also the concept of grace, of hen from Hashem. That at a certain point, we don't control. And our ego, at least, is not controlling when we're happy and when we're sad. And we just have to open up to what we're feeling at that moment. You breathe into it and you say, okay, this is where I'm at right now. And you take the good and you take the bad and you say, Hashem, you know, please give me, uh, you know, what I need to go through and, and, and the positives that I'm looking forward to. Yes. You do the opposite terms, pessimism and optimism. Mm -hmm. If you have the terms 
let's say, depression, mm. you're a psychiatrist, right? Depression, mm. and what's the opposite of depression? Mania. Okay. You can control your depression or the sources. Yeah. You're off and use it to other things. Absolutely. Absolutely. So there, there certainly are things that we can do. Uh, but you talk to somebody who has clinical depression and they'll tell you, do it. I'm telling you, I have anhedonia. I have this thing where no matter what I do, things I used to enjoy, I no longer enjoy. I listen to music. I still feel like garbage. And it just it was a matter of the, the depression running its course. And very often, I think the, the thing that saves a lot of people, you talk about Alcoholics Anonymous and they say, you know, but by the grace of God, go we. For them, it's uh, for an addict, it's all about giving up control because it was a person who was so obsessed with controlling how they feel all the time that the thing that healed them was realizing what they don't control. And because they were a control freak, they drank alcohol because alcohol disinhibits them. And it says, you know, now I could just be and totally disinhibited and it forces them to give up control. And that's what they were really craving the whole time. And it's like, dude, you don't have to do that. Instead of using the alcohol to force you into submission to it as your higher power, now you could submit to the grace of God as your higher power. Because you were really looking for something to give up control for you so that you didn't have to control everything all the time. Because who wants to be the president of a country? Who wants to be responsible for everything all the time? You know, like, uh, I think there's a great Jerry Seinfeld bit about that. Who's responsible for this? Nobody ever wants to be that person. You know, but we think of responsibility as such a great thing. It's a, everything is a double-edged sword. Exactly. And that's uh, for, for good reason, right? Um, so, so we see also in, in Pasuk Vav, this, the southward blowing of the wind, uh, and you see that we don't even know what the pasuk is talking about till like the uh, like so many words in. I didn't even know it was talking about the ruach till like the tenth word of the pasuk, and the way that it's described here is the delay of the subject in the pasuk till late in the sentence is actually suggestive of an unrelenting pull forward. There's like and, the, and this word savav repeats four times. It's unrelenting and it's like a juggernaut. Life just keeps on pushing you and the wind will keep on blowing and you can't control it and it just keeps on going. And finally, the, the last pasuk we were talking about, all the streams flow into the sea. So this is an example of frustrated efforts. You know, he's thinking of it as, I want to just fill up the ocean already. Yeah, when is it finally going to get filled up? And it's like, no, it never gets filled up. So rather than seeing this as a beautiful act of renewal by God with the water cycle, he sees it as, no, this is, the, what if there was a goal? What if we wanted to finally fill up the ocean with water? It's, it's, a, it's really a, an analogy for feeling like I just want to grasp it all. I just want to be in control of all of it. And Yanni, he wants to, I think, he wants to join with Yotkevavke. He wants to feel like, the omniscient, omnipotent ruler of the world. And, you know, deep, deep down, far, far in, we could each do our own soul searching. We kind of feel like that too. Nobody wants to feel whooshed around by the vicissitudes of life. We all want to feel in control. And yet, it's very hard. We don't feel that way. So let's keep reading. 
לא יוכל איש לדבר, לא תשבע עין לראות ולא תמלא אוזן משמוע. All such things are wearisome. No man can ever state them. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear enough of hearing. We could be constantly stimulated by different things, especially nowadays with the cell phone and constantly we need to be talking to people and, and all these different things. We barely have time for peace and quiet. And all these things are wearisome. Yani, and he's saying, all the words even are wearisome, not even things, but another interpretation is words. You can't even, no amount of words that you could speak could possibly convey the enormity and the immensity of the repetitions that the world is locked in. It's been going on for so long that it's like, I can't even explain to you how many, how many eons it's been chugging along for. And this was a master of 70 languages. Mm, it's a person, this is a person who was quite wise. And he Exactly. It's an incredible thing. That's right. You know, and, and uh, no matter how many words you have, you're never going to really be able to put reality into words, even if you're a master wordsmith. Also, we all have our own reality. Absolutely. Exactly. It's all subjective reality. You can never talk about the absolute reality because you're always speaking from your perspective. Um, so no man could ever, this is an emotional reaction from Kohelet. Uh, he's saying where he's fatigued by the attempt to comprehend the world, and yet he can't help himself. He can't help this desire to comprehend and to understand. Uh, he's saying the eye can never be sated, and the ear never gets enough of hearing. Um, actually, in, the, in Ben Sirah, he takes it in the opposite way. It's an exclamation of awe and, and how awesome Hashem is. Who can be sated with seeing the appearance of God's works? So obviously there's different ways of looking at this, like we mentioned with Einstein and we mentioned with uh, Stephen Hawking. Those are very religious ways of looking at the world, of the mystery leading you towards that ineffable experience of God. For him, it was the opposite. For him, it was frustrating, and that's it. Uh, so I'll say something that I think is really at the core of all this, is that what's driving Kohelet constantly is a feeling of being disconnected from the world. When you study mental illness, from, from my own studies, I see that what, what really is at the core of every single mental illness is a feeling that the ego is separated from its environment. And the, the cure for mental illness, it seems, whether it be drugs or it be practical measures in therapy, is dissolving those boundaries between the ego and its environment. And with your social relationships, with the universe, with God, you name it, the feeling of connectedness will cure anybody's depression or anxiety, PTSD, OCD, eating disorders, or addictions. Schizophrenia is a little different. We could talk about that another time. But even asking the question the way that he's framing it is perceiving himself. We said the first and most important question is, who am I? If your answer to that question is, I'm a separate ego, then everything that follows from there is going to be painful because everything that follows everything that follows from there is identifying me as separate. And now I want to feel one up on the universe. I want to feel like I'm going to grasp it and I'm going to wrap my arms around it. Why do you, why do you want to do that? You know why you want to do that? Because you feel like you're separate. If you identified yourself with the entire universe, 
you wouldn't be having this problem. So you talk about uh, biology when we study animals. You never talk about an, uh, an animal in isolation. You always talk about an animal in its, in its ecosystem, in its habitat. The same thing goes for Michael Franco. There's no such thing as Michael Franco unless there's the rest of the universe in space and time. So I didn't begin in 1995. I began with the Big Bang leading up till now. And I'm not just right here in, in Manhattan Beach, you know, El David and Shalomon. I'm really in the universe, which is in, and this place is in there. You know, so you have to take that really macroscopic lens to really talk about the truth. Yes, question. Yeah, it's, it's more in addition. Something that helped me is I noticed children. I children feel do not feel like how very often how adults do. They're very they're able to be in the present moment and they're able to you know, be in here and now. And something happens, they bump their headache and up they keep walking. There is something with us where we what helped me is visit back those times where I wasn't in control and how what the reaction was and what my reaction was. Did I just get up and keep going? Did I get a second to think about what happened? Whatever, maybe there was consequences, maybe it broke my arm, I could like ass balls, mm -hmm. all these things that made me feel like maybe I need to be more control, I need to be safer. I can't fight there, I can't fight at night, almost something else, things like that. Beautiful, 100%, yeah. So we go to another phrase, no man is an island, no man stands alone. Maybe we have to go back to the title, every person has to belong to weight. Exactly. I love that. Oh, maybe inherent in the name is, you know, the irony of it is that the answer was there all along, just belonging to a group that's larger than yourself. You know, there's a great book I recommend, uh, Jonathan Haidt's book called The Happiness Hypothesis. I quote it all the time. Uh, and it's about seeing uh, yourself as, you know, really happiness comes from between. Some people think that it's all about the inner work that we do that's very Eastern. And Western is all about the external world that we do. It's really from between. When you get that dance right between um, my meditation is great, my prayer is great, and I have a good job, and I have a good family, that's where the magic happens. So it's really about the connectedness that I feel with the entire universe and the world around me and the people around me. And those connections are what allow me to feel happy. Um, so like we're saying, the problem inherent in the questions themselves is a feeling of disconnectedness from the universe. That's what I think. Um, Kohelet, however, you know, he, he understands that there's limitations to his understanding. Uh, and it's you know, what, what he's doing, he's not humbly accepting these limitations as a religious duty. And he's not saying all these limitations are so beautiful because they point to a mystery of what's beyond me. And that's what makes life so interesting is this mystery. No, no, no. He's swallowing it as a bitter fact of life is I have to accept it. There's, there's nothing I can do. I don't know. And it's, it's hard to, to swallow that fact. Um, let's keep going. Only that shall happen, which has happened. Only that occurs, which has occurred. There is nothing new beneath the sun. That's a very famous quote here from Kohelet. Uh, so, what, you know, what's the meaning of this? That there's nothing new under the sun. It's what we were saying earlier. It's all a variation on the same theme. So a good uh, analogy given here by Rabbi Fox, that's who wrote this commentary. He really compiled a lot of different commentaries. That's why I like his. 
He says, we are like figures in a computer game whose actions seem to vary with each play, but are really just ephemeral variants of possibilities dictated by the software. So let's say we're living in this soup of molecules and the laws of physics is, exist. And uh, that's basically like the software and there's variations of possibilities of what could happen, but we're confined into that. Isn't there an absurdity to that? Especially maybe when you're not suffering, that's fine. You're enjoying the game. But when you are suffering, you start questioning, why should there be a game in the first place? Is it really necessary? Um, and he's saying in life, achievements are an illusion and they're really echoes of archetypal events because whatever you think you accomplished, eh, you didn't really accomplish anything. It's already been done and the world didn't really need you to do this. Um, so I think, uh, as we were saying earlier, the mystical response to this way of thinking is to stop identifying as the object and start identifying as the subject. And in a way, by removing your ego from any given scenario, you open yourself to the humility of the moment. You open yourself to feeling, you know, like this moment is where I could find God. And if I'm looking for God in the next moment, or if I'm looking for God in strict materialism, then I'm looking in the wrong place or I'm starting from the wrong place if I'm starting from ego. When I let go of my ego, I open myself to that which is beyond ego. But if I'm so filled up with my ego, there's no more room for God. Sometimes there's a phenomenon of which they say, look, this one is new. It occurred long since in ages that went by before us. So he's saying, don't think anything is ever really new. The earlier ones are not remembered. So too, those that will occur later will no more be remembered than those that will occur at the very end. It talks about music. No, I'm <laughs> yeah, if only. Right? So, so he's clearly uh, uh, lamenting this feeling of everything being static, everything not really changing fundamentally and not feeling like there's anything that we can actually effectuate in the world for the good. Because, you know, even if you do something good, by the way, who's guaranteeing that it's not going to lead to something evil? You saved a life, Hazako Baruch, and his lineage is going to come a murderer. You have no idea. You have no way of knowing absolute goodness or absolute evil. Or, you know, the famous story of the farmer, that uh, the farmer, uh, his horse ran away. All the neighbors came by and they say, oh, how terrible is that that your horse ran away? He says, maybe. The next day, the horse comes back with seven wild stallions and he quadruples his wealth overnight. And they say, how great is that that you just you know, got all this wealth? He says, maybe. The next day, his son is trying to tame one of these wild stallions. And he falls off and he breaks his leg. And all the neighbors say, how terrible is that your son broke his leg? He says, maybe. And the next day, the conscription officers from the army come to try to you know, draft his son to the army. And everyone says, how great is this? Your son does have to go to the army. He says, maybe. And there's a wisdom and a humility in that because we just don't know. We don't know what leads to what. So don't hang your hat on anything is the message of that. And I think the message of this as well. But do enjoy that strawberry we were talking about before in moderation. And, and he's going to talk about how to enjoy 
those small things in life in a way that's not going to come to lead to even more pain in the end. And I think there's a wisdom in just the simple, uh, you know, practical common sense that he's trying to share here in this book. Um, so let's keep going. We're, we're almost done with the pedic. A few more pisukim, and then we'll open it up to more questions and comments. So now, finally, we asked before, who is this guy? He's going to introduce himself a little bit more. Who is he? Um, so let's see. Ani kohelet, ha'iti melech al Yisrael birushalayim. For all intents and purposes, who am I? I'm this guy, kohelet. I was king over Israel and Jerusalem. Venatati et libi ledrosh velatur bachofma. Wow, he says, I set my mind to study and to probe with wisdom all that happens under the sun. An unhappy business, that which God gave men to be concerned with. So he's saying, you know, I am this person, I'm a king, and I was very wealthy, I was very mighty. Uh, and he's trying to set up this persona from which he could speak for the rest of the book, like we said. Um, and I, took, I undertook this, this project to understand the world and to try to really grasp some of the wisdom of what's out there. But really, it brought a lot of misery alongside it. Um, and, you know, I, I think a, a big part of this cure is if your philosophizing is bringing you towards a brick wall, and, you know, and, and I like to say this in my Tuesday night class, I give a Tuesday night class in Sephardic. It's called spiritual psychotherapy, where a lot of mystical truths will end with the idea of paradox, where it's like, do I have free will? Do I not? Is there a, a purpose to everything? Is there not? Is there a meaning to everything? Is there not? You know, uh, is the ego an illusion or is it not? And all these different ideas and how Judaism deals with it. And you say to yourself, oh, it's a paradox. And you, you get, I used to get so frustrated by this. Like, this is the biggest cop-out in the world. But then I read a great quote. It says, a mystic without a paradox is like a lover without his beloved. Where paradox, actually, I think, is almost like a built-in message to the universe, which is saying, you're going to hit up against the brick wall every time you try to philosophize too much. Every time you try to go in a certain direction, you're going to hit a brick wall. And instead of keeping on banging your head against that wall, which is clearly what Kohela did for a while, just sit and be and look up at the sky or something and just be with what is because clearly the path that you were trying to find truth and trying to find God on was not the correct path or it wasn't incorrect. And you have every right to ask and to philosophize. But at a certain point, it's not about asking questions. It's not, it's not about thinking about the world. It's about experiencing of the world. And Ladat et Hashem probably implies a lot more of that experiential knowledge than just an intellectual knowledge. So we know that in ancient Near Eastern cultures, like in the Phoenician inscriptions, we have, I am uh, Kilamua, the son, son of Haya. I am Azitawada, uh, blessed by Baal, serving the Baal. So this is an ancient way of autobiographical accounts of the king's virtues and exploits. That's usually what followed when they would introduce themselves. For him, his exploits were, this is who I was. I was this king, and I was able to try to be smarter than everybody else. And we know that that's who Shalomo actually uh, kind of was. And this idea of Haya Melech, I was king. There's a famous midrash that says, at a certain point, Shalomo 
was possessed by some kind of a, a demon and it took over his body and tormented him. And then finally, uh, once that stopped, he went back to being king. And that's when he wrote this book. And if you think about what does that Madash mean, what is it trying to say? It probably has a lot to do with the idea that if you're possessed constantly with thinking about the world, it's almost like a demon. It's almost like something that doesn't allow you to just be. Who wants to be at a Yankee game and constantly philosophizing about the meaning of life? You're at the Yankee game. You want to enjoy the game. You want to have a beer with your friends. So if you're, if you're so obsessed with these things, you're not going to allow yourself to really just be. Um, so now what is he doing? He's saying, I set my mind. Uh, and Libby actually in this context means his mind because it was really the seat of thought. Uh, it's the rational faculty. Um, so he's using his process of perception and discovery. And this is actually a pretty beautiful thing, you know, using the intellect to the fullest degree that we can. And I think this is something we should, we should do. But at a certain point, also take the time to just be. Uh, but it's a very meditative thing that he's doing. He's actually watching his mind at work. He's talking about his live in the second person. He's saying, I just was being the observer, watching where my mind would go. And that frustrated me because it never could quite grasp everything. Um, and, he's, and he's amassing tremendous amounts of wisdom and knowledge. And he's using wisdom and he want, he's after a certain kind of wisdom, but it's unattainable wisdom. Like uh, Moshe Rabbeinu, uh, you know, on Har Sinai, asking to see Hashem's glory. <laughs> you can't see me and live. Rather, what, it is, what the truth is, is, is that you'll be able to see my back. Okay. Uh, a couple more pesukim. Um, sorry, a couple more ideas before we do the next pasuk. God gave men uh, these, these capabilities. We, it's almost like a cruel game that we're playing. If, if, we, if these ideas are ungraspable, if we're never going to be able to wrap our heads around them, then why did Hashem trap us? Why did Hashem set us up with the desire to know? If it was never going to lead anywhere good, then why give us this desire to know? So this is what he's so frustrated by. And he even says, which has like a, it's like a double entendre. It's like to be afflicted with this. It's not just, uh, you know, that he's, uh, let's see how they translate it here, to be concerned with it. It's also like he's, he's afflicted by his desire for more knowledge. Everything is just total futility, total vapor of vapors, total pursuit of wind. A twisted thing cannot be made straight, a lack that cannot be made good. So he, he's really now saying there's, there's nothing that we can actually accomplish. He's doubling down on this idea. And he's saying the quality of events in, in reality can never be fundamentally altered. Uh, and, and it cannot ever really be improved. And from there comes the senselessness in human endeavors. So I remember when I was growing up, I was trying to figure out what career I should take. And I was thinking about maybe being a rabbi, maybe being a doctor, maybe being a teacher. And it was so hard for me because I said, what's actually meaningful for me? And, and it, it really drove me insane at a certain point. I couldn't figure out how do I want to spend the rest of my life? What do I want to dedicate it to? 
And I remember I really wanted to change the world for the better. And at a certain point, I had to realize you cannot fundamentally change the world. And you know what the truth is? Uh, from one perspective, the world needs a lot of changing. And there's a lot of imperfections. But from another perspective, the world is going along just fine. And you don't need to fundamentally change anything. And there's a humility in that, I think. And if it's the balancing of those two parts of this paradox of is the, is the world in need of change or is it not that gives us a lot of, you know, uh, and a lot of uh, consolation. Yes. I feel your frustration. Like, like, yeah, like an animal. yeah I, I feel your frustration. And this is this is what comes up. Yeah, this this is what comes up and uh, yeah. Yes. I'm sorry about that. No, it's okay. It's, it's part of the process. Yeah. It's okay. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Well, one second, one at a time. Sorry, yeah. Yes. I, uh, I love that. Exactly. It's like Jordan Peterson, he says, the first rule for life is like clean your room. You know, he has this 12 rules for life. Make your bed. You know, do your do, work on yourself. Look inwards first. You know, a lot of these social justice warriors, I hate to say it, they're going out and they're insisting on changing the world. But the real thing to do is to perfect yourself first, is to work on your own qualities and your own equanimity and your own peace. And from there could come so much of the fruitful accomplishments that you want to accomplish in this world. And I think that's very admirable and very beautiful. Can so, we'll, say, uh, yeah. That is maybe the greatness of the that's exactly the point is that is that they're opening a space for the conversation because you know what, what happens if you totally reject this line of thinking 
you're going to you're going to lose a lot of people in 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 the span of time sure So, so the word that comes to mind for me is the word balance. And I think the reason I mentioned the idea of paradox is because that's the ultimate balance. When you, when you talk about free will and, and trying to understand how much does Hashem control, how much do I control, the, if you get that balance correct, you look at like Megillat Esther, and it's, it's so much about that partnership between us and HaKadosh Baruch Hu, that's where the sweet spot is. But if you talk about these types of people or people who believe too much in free will and not enough in Hashem's providence, you're going to be out of balance. So I think the, the beauty of this book is we get to notice where we see him as being out of balance and what led him towards a lot of his conclusions and a lot of his suffering. And we could take lessons for ourselves about how to be more in balance in our lives. So let's keep going. I know we, we don't have too much time left. Uh, so we'll, we'll finish the pedic quickly. We It's impossible really to, to ever fix anything. Uh, nothing ever really improves like we said. Um, I said to myself, here I have grown richer and wiser than any that ruled before me over Yerushalayim, and my mind has zealously absorbed wisdom and learning. And so I set my mind to appraise wisdom and to appraise madness and folly, and I learned that this too was pursuit of wind. He's, he's so frustrated, he's saying, even... When I tried to understand, he says, because I felt like wisdom wasn't leading me in the right way, maybe if I engage in madness, it'll lead me the right way. So you talk about some of this postmodernism today. You talk about going to a play and there's two people in garbage cans talking to each other. Or you talk about art that they, they say, you take a banana, you tape it to the wall. Or somebody eating chocolate pudding and they sneeze onto a canvas and that's art. <laughs> this is what happens when you go too far in one direction because you say to yourself, all right, wisdom didn't lead me anywhere, and the world is absurd. Let me dive into the absurdity. And you start doing all these other crazy things. So it's like clearly neither of these are in balance. We don't want to be rigid in this way, and we don't want to be rigid in this way. Dadaism, you know, and, and rolling around in the mud. You know, you could do whatever you want. You could really do whatever you want. I'm not stopping anybody. But I think... 
if you, you know, being in balance is so crucial for each of us that it's important to, to understand this idea of chokhmah and sikhlut, wisdom and folly, just because both exist doesn't mean I need to go too far in either direction. Um, and like we said, this is giving him deep malaise and a deep feeling of, or you know, just not feeling good overall. Um, and, and it's showing you this entire range of mental capabilities that's going on. And that's what he's going to be uh, talking about throughout this book. Uh, finally, the last pasuk of the Perek, Ki berob rov kaas, v'yosif dat, yosif machov, for as wisdom grows, vexation grows, to increase learning is to increase heartache. So he's lamenting wisdom, and like you're saying, it's a very difficult pasuk, but I think we could sympathize a little bit. He's not saying not to use wisdom. He is saying, and yet I can't help myself. I need to use wisdom. But at the same time, I'm frustrated. So he's trying to point out the trappings of wisdom. So I mentioned briefly a beautiful mitzvah that I, that I love that I just learned about in on Sukkot. You have the Arba Minim. You have Etrog, Lulav, Adasim, Aravot. And you look in the text, and there's a lot of parallels to Ma'aseh Bereshit in a certain way. And where else do we know of somebody taking a fruit? The first person to take a fruit in the Torah is Hava. She's removing that fruit from its source. But here on the holiday of Sukkot, you have a fruit, a leaf, which is the palm frond, a branch, uh, something that grows by the water. So from fruit to leaf to branch to water, it's bringing you back to its source saying, hold the whole ecosystem in your hands and be able to experience God meditatively in that. And the next is whatever you want to call God as the source of all of it, that's the ultimate happiness. So we mentioned earlier, the feeling of disconnectedness that, that Kohelet is going through is the root of all his suffering. The root of all happiness, says the Torah, the reason it's Zeman Simhatenu, is because you could look at anything. So I know one of these uh, you know, people that gives a lot of guided meditations, he says, I hold a piece of paper in my hand. I don't just see a paper. In the paper, I see sunlight. I see water. I see earth. I see stardust. When you look at any given moment, at the people around you, at the things around you, and when you allow them to imply the rest of the universe, that leads to happiness. That leads to source. That leads back to God. So we'll just say a couple of concluding remarks about this. Um, he, he's, even though he's putting down wisdom, he's later going to laud wisdom's benefits. So we'll get there. He's going to say that, that wisdom is very good as well. Um, and he's saying that even though he, you know, he's, he, he's, he cannot attain what he wants, uh, he can't attain the wisdom. The wisdom he's really looking for is wisdom about divine providence. How does Hashem run this world? How is it that, that you know, maybe a little bit less of that, maybe more of just what's going on right now? What is God doing in this game that we're playing? Uh, and finally, he's saying he's going to demonstrate by his own experience that wisdom forces its possessor to perceive life's absurdities. So thus, it is an unhappy business, but it is not a task that Kohelet avoids. 
So there's a certain courage in this, despite the pain of seeking out wisdom and discovering the absurdity of things. When you're a kid, everything makes sense. But then you start to question and you say to yourself, what if I never questioned? Maybe I would be better off. But then you look at people who never question and they're clearly not better off. So you say, this is something we have to do. We need to go on an intellectual journey. We need to tear down the idols of old, old time, like our forefather Abraham. We need to be iconoclasts. Doesn't mean we have to do with that without respect. We can do it with respect. We can do it with balance. But we might have uncovered certain absurdities. And the question is, how do we deal with this? So uh, my, my, my blessing to all of you and my prayer for the rest of this class series is that we could bring a mindfulness and a presence and a wisdom no matter what questions arise. And, and uh, I'd like to open the floor to you guys now to any questions or comments. I hope that this was engaging for you and meaningful for you. And I hope it doesn't just feel like an intellectual exercise, but I hope it feels like something that actually is going to apply to your daily life and give you a little bit more of an appreciation of what you already do have. Yeah. So in all of the house, is he always involved in the center of it? I think a lot of it is looking from the outside. A lot of it is trying to take a divine perspective. Um, but he realizes very quickly how limited he is from his human perspective and that he can't even imagine what a divine perspective might look like. But we'll, we'll definitely see. Uh, you know, I, I, I wish I could give you more examples, but I think we'll see throughout the book when he's able to take a little bit more of a, of a macro versus a micro perspective. Question. Yes. The video also, I'm going to post uh, the recording of this on my podcast. I have a podcast made by Dr. Nasser for me, actually. It's on, it's on Apple Music. It's on Spotify. It's, it's you just type in Michael Franco podcast. I think it's, I never really named it. It's called Michael Franco by Michael Franco. It's not a very good name. Very egotistical name. Forgive me. Um, yes, yeah, exactly. Not Mikey. Michael Franco. Exactly. With you. So Mike, for the last question, do you think you could be talking about balance as well? For wisdom growth, taxation growth. Like, if you, if you can see all the bad in the world that could happen, that's equal amount as good. Aywa, exactly. And, and, you know, in order for positive 10 to exist, negative 10 must exist, you know, and, and you can't have your cake and eat. I mean, you, sorry, you can't have uh, all this goodness and, and heaven unless you also have the possibility for hell. Um, so that's something that we'll, we'll discuss more. And, you know, asking for that's how we actually began the entire class is uh, with this idea of if you had audience with God and you could ask God, all right, what does it look like for the world to exist with only positive and no negative? And God says, your question makes absolutely no sense. It's like trying to conceive of a four-sided triangle. It's just impossible. You either have nothingness or you have somethingness and the somethingness must include a positive and a negative. And by the way, if you have the time, you could look up this word, the pretender, or sorry, the song, the pretender, and it talks about a person who feels like they're going through the motions of life and you just get up and do it again. And we'll see throughout this book that this is very much how Kohelet feels. He feels like he's, uh, you know, I'm going to rent myself a house in the shade of the, the freeway. I'm going to pack my lunch in the morning and go to work each day. And when the evening rolls around, I'll go home and lay my body down. And when the morning light comes streaming in, I'll get up and do it again. Amen. And like, it just repeats that over and over again. And sometimes life can feel that way until you take a moment and you say, hold a second. I have a little bit of deja vu. 
I feel like this is going on and on and on and on and on. What is going on exactly? Who am I? Who is the one that's experiencing this? And you go deeper and deeper into this question of what do I really want? And the answer that the mystics give is this moment is what you really want. And once you go deeply into that, you find a real path towards what I think is a lot of enlightenment. Yeah. I think those who dive in the air in the morning at 6.15 or whatever, and if they go to the bay and see the beauty of that red wall in the sky mm. coming up mm. and can divorce themselves from getting off their cell phone, or they come in here and they look out the window and see the clouds and the trees and the awesomeness of Hashem, mm. you have to get away from the junk and appreciate what's around. Absolutely. There's, there's the simple beauties of life. There's nothing more beautiful than that. Sure. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Um, it's going to be alternating, by the way, as far as each week, and you're going to go by Joe uh, so far. That's great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Sadiq. Dude.